Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Good news for South Africa. The alcohol ban has been lifted and people can buy wine once again. The US announces that 25% tariffs on European wine remain in place. Boxed wine on the rise in the UK, US and Australia during lockdown. Margaret River subregion classification rejected. And as ever, our wine of the week. So let's start by looking at our week in wine and what we've been up to. And Katie, you had a quite intense webinar series that you dealt with on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, which was quite interesting, I thought. Yes, but not really a webinar. It was more of a Zoom meeting, a very long Zoom meeting. Uh, The California Wine Institute hosted the LCBO, uh, so that's the Liquor Control Board of Ontario in Canada, uh, two of their new California buyers. And Canada is a very important market for the U.S., for California wines in particular. And so this was an opportunity to give the buyers a a real view of California wineries without actually bringing them here, since obviously with COVID-19 still in effect, you know, the restrictions remain, the travel bans. So so they switched what would have been an in-person tour uh, one week. Uh, here in California to a virtual tour. It was three days in a row, uh, about six hours a day, and featuring a new winery on the hour every hour. And it was really interesting how each winery presented themselves. You know, some are obviously more tech savvy than others, uh, but it really was a a wide range of video, uh, you know, pre-recorded video, live presentations, PowerPoints, and other visual aids. And it, you know, some people got very creative and I think really made a good impression. And you started at 6.30 each morning, which uh, terrifies me, the thought of that. So pretty intense, but um, it does sound like a really good way of replicating meeting the winemakers and the uh, sales reps and the marketing team, etc, etc, and getting that connection. Because it's so important in wine that you have that story and you know who's behind the wine. And we did get a bit of insight into the Canadian wine industry, which... um, It's kind of terrifying, the bureaucracy and the monopolies that they have there. Yes, a very complex market, to say the least. On another note, we had a bit of a fun blind tasting on Thursday with our little blind tasting group, which we had been doing through Zoom, but we actually managed to meet up in person, keeping our social distancing, of course. And these were two random wines, one white and one red, so there's no connection between the two. And the first one, Katie, how did we fare with the white? Not well. We were, some of us were in Viognier territory, others were more in uh, Chenin Blanc territory, uh, and in the end it was Albarino from Ries by Jess. And this is my bugbear. I just never get Albarino, and I should because it's aromatic, it's got high acidity, it's supposed to be really distinctive, and I, and I get it wrong every time. And it even crossed my mind, and I still didn't say it. Oh, see, for me, it didn't even cross my mind. And that's the problem for me with Albarino is that it never pops into my head when I'm doing these blind tastings, even though I really do love the style of wine. Um, so I guess that just means we'll have to do a intense Albarino tasting sometime soon to really get that style ingrained in our heads and our palates. Absolutely. That does sound like fun as well as being educational. And then the red... We again failed, we have to admit. Blind tasting's hard. It turned out to be a Chianti Classico. We were kind of all over the place, but I think with these blind tastings, the most important thing is to have an accurate tasting note in terms of quality, fruit profile, texture, etc., etc. And I think we were all describing the wine very accurately. It's just that we never got to Chianti, because that's another region that we don't drink that much wine from. 
So true. So more Chianti and Alberino in our near future. Now on with the news. As reported by the pod in previous episodes, the South African drinks business has been struggling over the last few months due to an intermittent ban on sales of alcohol. The ban was initially enforced in March and lasted nine weeks, and then was reinstated in July. After mounting pressure, not just from within the industry, but also from regional politicians concerned by the impact on tourism and hospitality, President Cyril Ramaphosa lifted the ban as South Africa moved into a level two state of alert. In general, this allows economic activity to resume alongside travel and social visits. Sales of alcohol are permitted in on-premise establishments until 10 p.m. and off sales from Monday to Thursday. It's estimated that the ban on sales has cost the industry over a billion U.S. dollars, which led the provincial governor of the Western Cape, Alan Windy, to argue in favor of the hospitality industry, stating that if properly licensed establishments are not allowed to sell alcohol on site, they will not be able to remain financially viable. South Africa has been the worst hit African country and the fifth hardest hit by COVID-19 in the world. However, Wendy also commented on, quote, a second equally dangerous pandemic, unemployment. Well, this is the dilemma that countries around the world have been facing. Difficult balancing acts between the health of people and the economy as well. And this is, um, it's quite political. People have different opinions on this, but it is a balancing act which politicians need to meet. And it is hard. And South Africa has been one of the more extreme in their policymaking and banning alcohol altogether or in the sales of alcohol. But elsewhere, you know, restaurants, bars, how do you keep them open? Which are the best ways? Well, that's the larger discussion, at least here in the U.S., is the federal policy versus state policy versus county policy. And, you know, everyone wants to make their own rules. So good luck with that. Um, But I am very happy to know that uh, South African wine sales are back up and running uh, domestically. And hopefully, you know, their exports will continue to rise and they can pull themselves out of this hole. Absolutely. And I tasted some fantastic South African wine this week, which I was very excited about, particularly from Chenin Blanc and Sanso. Some really good stuff coming from South Africa. So uh, support that industry. More news on tariffs imposed by the USA on EU goods, including wine and spirits. This week, the US announced that it will maintain the 25% tariffs introduced last November, stating that, quote, the EU and member states have not taken the actions necessary to come into compliance with WTO decisions. As previously reported on the pod, these tariffs have had a damaging effect not just on the European drinks industry, but also in the US where retailers have been hurt by increased prices. Given the impact of the COVID-19 crisis, these continued tariffs do nothing to help. And the scotch industry reacted particularly strongly, uh, stating that a decline of 30% in exports to the U.S. since tariffs were imposed and caused crippling losses of 300 million pounds. The industry urged the British government to come to an agreement before the presidential election in November when talks will be limited, as well as providing more support for the industry. So far, £500,000 have been offered by the government, in contrast to more concrete financial backing provided by the French government for wine. Burgundy also hit out at the continuing tariffs. Quote, with the tariffs and COVID-19, it's a catastrophe for us, said CAVB President Thierbeau Hubert. 
Imports of French wine, excluding sparkling, fell by 35% in the first eight months of the tariffs, amounting to losses of 415 million euros. But it's not just the Europeans who are complaining. Ben Aneff, president of the US Wine Trade Alliance, said the decision was a blow to American wine businesses and restaurants, failing to appropriately weight the damage to US businesses. Well, 25% is better than 100%, which was also threatened, um, but still 25% is quite a, a bit and it's going to take a hit, um, not only with producers trying to export wines to the US, but also the US wine buyers. <laughs> Following on from last week on the pod, when we reported on the rise in sales of boxed wine in Australia, a similar trend is emerging in the UK and the USA. Australian producer McGuigan launched their first bag-in-box 18 months ago and saw steady but unspectacular sales until COVID-19 hit. In March, it sold out completely in the UK. This came as a shock to both the producer and to retailers who were begging for more. Also in the UK, supermarket Sainsbury's reported that nearly 7 million customers had bought bag-in-box during the lockdown, a 41% increase on the previous year. The rise in sales was particularly driven by young consumers, with 28% of customers aged between 25 and 34 buying bag-in-box wine. The new popularity of bag-in-box has been attributed to a new generation discovering the sustainable format which is sold at affordable prices, as well as being ideal for home consumption. As the pod has been reporting over the last few months, sales of alcohol have been on the rise in many countries, although home consumption, rather than in bars or restaurants, means that trends have been changing. Bag-in-box is one example, and large, recognizable brands have also benefited. Black Box, Woodbridge, Barefoot, Apothec, and Kendall Jackson accounted for 26% of sales in the U.S., where private labels struggled. Overall, off-premise sales in the U.S. rose by 17.5% compared to last August, although these sales figures seem to have plateaued since the height of the lockdown. Spirit sales increased the most by 29%, while wine rose by 17.3%, and beer, by the smallest figure, 7.8%. Given the difficulty in ordering a cocktail at a bar, ready-to-drink cocktails also saw a 100% increase in the off-trade. So I think these trends were going on even prior to COVID-19. Bag-in-box and cans uh, sort of on the rise because of the sustainable nature of the packaging um, have been more and more popular among younger consumers. And I guess now just the convenience factor has really been highlighted now that there's no on-premise and everything's been focused on off-trade. It's funny you should say that because I was quite surprised by these figures for bag-in-box in particular. I think everything else didn't surprise me. But I remember in February where you know, I was at a conference which you had helped organise where uh, the Swedish importer of um, US wine is talking about how important bag-in-box was in Sweden uh, because of the sustainable aspects. And I thought maybe that was just kind of a one-off Swedish thing. But it seems to have become quite universal very quickly. And certainly it may have been a trend that was already happening, but it's definitely been accelerated. And then with the ready-to-drink cocktails, that was something that already existed, but definitely has benefited hugely from the way people are drinking now. Well, perhaps that's just from my close circles of wine-drinking friends. They come in all shapes and sizes, and I have many friends who appreciate the bag-in-box and cans and, and whatnot and aren't tied to the classic format of the bottle. 
Right, and it might be because I'm a little bit older than you. So back in the 80s when bag in box was a huge thing, it became very unfashionable quite quickly then it's associated with bad wine. But it seems to have come full circle, but the wine's much better because um, inexpensive wine is far better than it was 30 years ago. Interesting news from Australia, where an application to have the sub-region of Margaret River recognised as a GI has been rejected. The sub-region is called Williabrup, and famous long-standing producers such as Cullen and Mosswood applied at the end of last year, but the application was rejected for several reasons. There was no final agreement on the boundaries for the new GI, there was insufficient scientific analysis provided, and also because there was an ongoing project to map out Margaret River's potential GIs. Vanya Cullen said the decision lacked courage and vision, and there seems to be conflict between these producers and the Margaret River Wine Association, who opposed the proposal. Nonetheless, Margaret River is exploring its sub-regions, with six being mapped out according to climate and soil types, Yallingup, Carbonup, Williabrup, Treaton, Walcliffe and Carradale. Well, it seems that Australia is exploring its identity and regionality. As all of us wine students know, uh, Australia can be notorious for having huge GIs and huge, you know, regional designations that makes it very difficult to sort of identify these small pockets. But I applaud Margaret River, but it seems that they're just going to need to provide a little bit more detail in order to make something like this go through. When Australia came up with its GI system in the 1990s, there was a lot of controversy, a lot of arguments, everyone having different opinions on what the GIs should look like. And it looks like this might be the same with Margaret River. But the fact that they're um, identifying these six sub-regions and working to break them down and show that Margaret River isn't just one monolithic region, but there's actually a lot of variety to it, is a good thing. So let's hope that they um, get to the right place at the right time. And now for our wine of the week. We know the producer. We're not sure which wine we're going to choose. I'm going to discuss that in this uh, little session. Uh, This week, Katie organised another of the California wine webinars with Elaine Chuck and Brown, this time with literary owner and winemaker Ted Lemon. That's right. And it's always a pleasure to hear Ted speak. Uh, Both you and I, we uh, watched a webinar not too long ago, probably about a month ago, uh, with Ted and David Hirsch. And it was really fun to hear their histories and uh, hear them talk about you know, Ted actually convincing uh, David Hirsch to go biodynamic and really showing him how he had done it in other vineyards that he was sourcing fruit from. And David seeing the advantages and then ended up converting his vineyards to full biodynamic farming practices. Um, So he was back with uh, Elaine Chacon Brown, and Litteri is one of our favorite California wineries, though we don't get to taste them much as we would like to, since the wines are quite expensive and hard to come by. But after the webinar on Tuesday, uh, we got the opportunity to taste some of the bottles, uh, Chardonnay and four Pinot Noirs. And there's delight to try them. So a little bit of background on Litteri. After working in Burgundy in the 1980s, Ted set up Litteri in the mid-90s and has established it as one of California's leading Pinot producers and really well respected across the world. The winery is located near Occidental in coastal Sonoma. Besides his own vineyard, called The Pivot, which is right next to the winery, uh, Ted sources fruit from across Sonoma Coast and Mendocino. And besides the Chardonnay, we got to try two of the Mendocino Pinots, Savoy and Wendling, and two from Sonoma, The Pivot and The Haven. 
And it's fascinating to try these four wines side by side, all really high quality, but um, each one slightly different in its expression. Which was your favorite, Katie? Well, for me, I was drawn more towards the Anderson Valley Pinots. And, you know, the, Sav- the Savoy and Wendling were very different, uh, even though, you know, they're not too far o- away from each other. Anderson Valley AVA is not a large one. Um, and Savoy is a little bit further north, northernmost end of the AVA of the valley, and Wendling a little bit more central. So Savoy was a, a bit lighter, lower alcohol, just really floral and beautiful. And Wendling had a little bit more weight behind it, um, slightly higher alcohol, and then just more kind of plush dark fruits. Um, but I think in the end, I, I preferred the Savoy. So that's going to be my vote. Well, it's interesting because tasting them on their own, I was definitely drawn towards the Wendling for the reasons that you mentioned. And then we had it with food, um, a chicken dish that we cooked, and the leanness of the Savoy really complemented the food. It's just that acidic structure made it very food-friendly, whereas the fruitiness of the Wendling kind of contrasted with the, the food a little bit more. So my opinion kind of went back and forth, and that's what I love about these wines. Depends where you're drinking them, who you're drinking them with, and um, what what the food is. Cheers to that. So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gorn. Join us next week for another Wind Up. And in the meantime, we ask that you please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That helps other listeners searching for the news in wine to find us. Especially if the reviews are positive. That's right. See you next week. Cheerio. Cheerio.